from the good news according to John, the fourth chapter. I'm just going to read the beginning of our text and we'll actually finish some of it later during the sermon. It's also our sermon text this morning. So let's give it our careful attention. These are the words of life given to us by God. So Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the gospel of our Lord. Just to remind you, we're moving through a sermon series called Why Church? Why Now? As a response to the fact that the church has, in America, has experienced its largest decline uh, in American history. In fact, it's the greatest religious shift in American history. Uh, over the last 25 years, uh, 40 million people have left the church. Uh, and so we're trying to interact with the reasons that are given for that, uh, the cultural reasons, the individual reasons given, and also own the ways that the church has contributed to uh, people's reactions to this, uh, as well as taking an opportunity to repent and ask, how can we not only say we're sorry or understand ourselves and our failures better, but to uh, ask the Lord to give us grace for this place, for this time, for now, to see this as an opportunity, as a field ripe for harvest, if we will follow him by faith in the power of the Spirit. So let me uh, pray for us, uh, and then we will discover, we will, we will reflect upon what it means to practice incarnation in an ideological world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which we are going to submit to and put ourselves underneath rather than over here for this moment. 
We're not going to stand over it and chop it up and make it into a little system of our choosing. We're going to sit under it and allow it to be embodied by vocal cords and the spirit moving through the air and going into our ears. And we're going to ask you to give us the grace and humility to submit to this written word that we might find it to be living and active and to chop up the thoughts and of our hearts and the desires and our will and to reshape us and to make us new because it is not just a written word it is indeed a true and accurate representation of the living word christ himself your logos come into the world and so use this time for your glory and for our good and for the sake of the world we pray in christ's name amen White supremacy, anti-racism, Zionism, colonialism, woke, MAGA, Christian nationalism, libertarianism, socialism, imperialism, liberal humanism, Conservatism, progressivism, are you bored yet? I can keep going and going and going. My guess is that you have had very, very passionate response to at least one of these things sometime in the last few years. You may have lost relationships over it. You used to have feelings that were maybe this big and now they're as large as this room about one of these things. And I just wanna argue for a second. We're not gonna argue that none of these things matter. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but we're gonna have a little bit of a different emphasis today. All of these things are ideology. They are, or at least they start with, and usually remain in the realm of the intellect, the mind, filtering strong desires and needs through our willpower into ideas. This kind of raw impulse that's somewhere subconscious that we need to belong and to understand. This impulse is formed into a thought and someone had put words to that thought and so we can grasp onto it and step into it and say, yes, this is the system I want to belong in. I like this belief system. This makes me feel good. It makes sense of things and also it puts me on a team. I like being part of a team. We're social animals after all. And so these systems recruit and bring people into what we might also call identity politics. These ideologies turn into identity politics, which again are thoughts of the mind about ourselves and who we are and who's on our team and who gets to belong on our team and who doesn't. And so they're immediately exclusive. Identity politics are ideology posing as self-understanding Again, some semblance of belonging to something larger. And I'm just going to use some of the ways that we talk about ourselves now. We say, I'm cisgendered, or I'm black, or I'm white, or that's an immigrant, or those are elites, or those are rednecks. These are ideas that have now become bumper stickers of self-understanding, statements of belief to the world about who we are and who we're against, statements about ourselves. And they're all ideas at their core, ideas, thoughts that tend to reduce humans down to whether their thoughts agree with all of our thoughts. We reduce humans to their brains, to their beliefs, and then we decide whether or not they get to belong 
for getting it all right. This is addictive, and it is overtaking our culture and our world. I read from this article once so many years ago. It's from 2018. The journalist, Matt Taibbi, who was then writing for Rolling Stone magazine, had an article called, Can We Be Safe from Facebook? And I know, boomer, you know, everyone's moved on to all the other things. But if this is true of Facebook in 2018, just imagine what it's true of now with TikTok and Instagram and all the other alternative news sources and everything else that's happening in the world. He says this, Facebook is full of features such as likes that dot your surfing experience with neuro rushes of microapproval, a little dopamine hit. The hits might come with getting a like when you post a picture of yourself thumbs up in the world's third largest cheese wheel or, or flashing the live long and prosper sign on an international Star Trek day or whatever it is that you do in your cyber time. It's a social validation feedback loop. And now he's going to talk to some social scientists and cultural commentators. Exactly the kind of thing a hacker like myself, this man Parker explained, it's exactly the kind of thing a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Another social scientist, Turrell, says all addictions operate on the variable reward system. And he estimates that 10% of the population could now meet the criteria of being at risk for social media addiction. Be at risk for social media addiction. Chronic users spend hours staring glassy-eyed at screens in search of the tiny rushes that come with likes or with the reading of articles validating their views. Mental horizons are narrowed. A study by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences concluded Facebook users were more likely to interact with a limited number of news sources. And you're like, dude, old news, Jameson. i like, I know. And the pandemic and everything since then has only exacerbated this online, hyper-partisan, disembodied life of micro-news that tells me what I want to hear and so forth and so on. Matt Taibbi also, I think he wrote this before the pandemic, I'd have to look at the date, uh, in his book called Hate Inc., studied online behavior and the infrastructure of attention economies uh, and the tactics they use. And he likened what they actually do, all of them, take your pick, is that you're walking down the street and there's a bunch of alleys going off the street. And there's a barker, you know, a person barking from the end of the alley down there. It's a little dark. It's a little off the main path. They're like, hey, you know those people, the white Christian nationalists. Yeah, Over there, the MAGA types. You know what I saw? They did this. And you're like, oh, wait, I love that. I want to hear more about that. You find your thing. You go down the alley. And you get to the end of the alley just so that they can knock you out and rob you of your money, which is a fact because that's all that they really care about. They're using hate and our inclination toward it to find the ideas we like, to stoke our hate, to make us more angry so that we keep going back and get eyeballs so they can take our money and sell us things. We really deeply do want to belong. And they're exploiting these potent and sometimes toxic ideas to get our money. And I want to say here, it's easy to talk about the culture, but this is the world we live in. We've all been reduced to our ideologies. We treat everyone else as if they were their ideology and whatever identity politic they happen to claim, whether that makes them in our circle or more often than not outside of our circle. And the church is hardly any better. I think one of the reasons people have left the church is not only because they failed to offer anything different in an ideological age, but in so many cases, they are exacerbating the problem taking up their megaphones and leading their flocks right down these alleys. 
Even just think about it sociologically. For most of its history, Christianity was mostly, in America, was mostly a Protestant situation. All sorts of different Protestant uh, expressions. But in general, to boil it down in a way that's just shorthand, this is the tradition that has emphasized the word, God's written word, the Bible, and their right to do so. But at the expense of word and sacrament. The Protestants are their Bible Christians. They get the systems right, they understand, to break it down and to apply it to people, to give people new ideas. But not so much emphasis on the water and the wine or the bread, those things we call smells and bells, or mercy ministry, or social justice. Instead, we are souls to be saved for a disembodied afterlife rather than humans to be healed in their holistic relationship with God, self, neighbor, and the created order. The church, in so many ways in America, has failed to offer an alternative community for an ideological age. Falling for the Facebook trap ourselves, choosing sides, defending ideas, making enemies, putting up borders to belonging. And so sometimes we find ourselves to be unwitting or sometimes even complicit messengers of hate. Completely failing to embody the good news, which is a message that needs to be embodied. There was a lovely Christian who has been formative to Resurrection Brooklyn since our founding some 20 years ago. Leslie Newbigin, he was a British Christian that went and spent most of his career work ministering in India. And he's, he had to be a missionary. He had to figure out how do you do mission work in a totally foreign place. And he spent his whole life there. And then he came back to the UK at the end of his life and he said, oh no, when I was away, this place has changed. And if the church is going to have any hope, they have to be missionaries. It's not so much that this Christian UK anymore, Christian America. It is a foreign landscape that is not very, not very like Christianized. And so we need to treat it like missionaries and he says this how is it possible today that the good news this message yes an idea but not just an idea not just words that this gospel should be credible that people would be like this makes sense to me this belief that i would want to adopt for myself how is it possible that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross i am suggesting that the only answer the only hermeneutic, which is a way to say to make, uh, make it understand, understandable, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I agree with Bishop Newbigin. And so how? What's the opportunity here to recover incarnation for an ideological word? So we'll just do a little bit of a theological study, and then we'll look at John 4 for a second, and then we'll apply it. What is Ideology. The Greek word comes from logos. You hear that in logi, you know, ideology. It's from the word lego, logos, and it means a word, sort of embodying an idea, a, a statement, you know, or a speech. That's the logos. It's also idea, which is a form or a pattern or a style or a notion. So it might be saying that together ideology is an idea that be kind of becomes a statement or a speech. It gets not embodied, but it gets turned into something more than just a discrete idea. It becomes a phrase or a statement 
or a speech or a worldview. In English, then, an ism or an ology is a kind of worldview with a commitment and passion behind it. And this word logos is so important in the Gospels. If you know anything about this, uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John begins with this crazy thing that he did, which is logos was this idea, and I'll explain in a second, used throughout uh, the ancient Near East. And he took what was then a pagan idea, a no-no idea to the Jewish people, and he took it and he applied it to Jesus, logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. This is how John begins. In English translations, we say in the beginning was the word, but the word translated is logos. And we see it used in different ways, like biology, it's a word about living things, or theology, a word about God. And so, though it's easy to translate it as word, you have to understand the philosophical baggage that was with it in the ancient Greek world. They were concerned with answering the ultimate questions of reality. They were seeking to find ultimate truth. They wanted to find the ultimate hidden reality behind all the other visible things. And over time, as the ancient philosophers pondered these questions, they came up with a term to describe. Sorry. They came up with a term to describe this ultimate reality. And the term they came up with was logos. The logos came to be understood as that which gave life and meaning to the universe. Uh, it's not exactly correct, but for shorthand, if you had any Westerners, you think of like Plato's Platonic ideals. There's something back there, right? The logos came to be understood as this creative force behind all things, this word. But it was understood only as an impersonal force, never as a personal being, and never as a concrete embodied reality. It was just the generative hidden, invisible pattern behind all things. And so when we come to John 1, we see what the apostle has done. Two crazy things with this that would have blown the mind of all the Greek philosophers. Rather than an impersonal first, the logos of John's gospel is a personal being who can be received or rejected by other people. He came into the world and the world did not receive him. Again, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God a personal force. And then as he gets going and going, he finally says, and the word, the logos, became flesh. Mind's blown. No philosopher in the history of the world had thought something like this, nor could they imagine it could be true. But John says the word became flesh that disembodied pattern or idea or reality that you guys are all worshiping. Let me tell you his real name. He was actually God. He is personal. And he became flesh and he dwelt among with us. He dwelt among us so closely that we now know him. We know his name. It is Jesus. We've seen actually his glory in his humanity, in his fleshliness, in his embodiment. Glory as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh. That word is sarks. Peter will use it later to talk about flesh, human, human nature and its fallenness. You know, don't pursue the flesh, all that, the works of the flesh, that sort of thing. But here, John's not embarrassed to use it. The logos became sarks. This is not ideology, it's sarxology. And the word sarks in the Greek means flesh, body, materiality, Human nature, kindred. 
Those are the ways that we can interpret it. One translation then of John 1 might be something like that. You know how it is to make a statement? God's statement was to become material and embodied like us, his family. God's statement was to become material and embodied like us, his family. And then he goes on to say, this is a profound mystery. It's glorious. It's a glory that we have touched. God's live idea in the flesh, we have handled him. We've heard the sounds, the sound waves of his voice. We've broken bread with him. He writes later in a he writes later in a letter to the church, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He goes on to tell us in that same thing that God is love. And so, love itself, God's creative idea was and is love, and this love became embodied. It became generative and creative, and it became flesh. And it made and continues to make our minds and our bodies and our souls and our spirits and our imaginations, all of us, incarnation is simply embodied love. So we move from ideology to incarnation. Ideology to incarnation. Disembodied ideas that give us an identity to exclude others. God brings love into the flesh to become material, to embody love with and for us. This is what Christians are to receive from Christ so that we can become incarnation for others. Let me give you one example from John 4 of how Jesus did this. There's so much more to be said, and this is just one anecdote, but it felt closer to our regular experience. You could say incarnation is such an expansive concept, yes, so that the practices of it in the flesh are literally endless in the world, okay? But here's one that Jesus did. He came to this woman, and I won't read the first part again just because of the sake of time, and it's a very long passage. But if you remember, we are seeing all the identity politics show up right in the way. All the divisions of the day. Jesus is walking to Samaria. Well, we don't go there because back in the day, they did that to us. And they're like, you don't come in here and talk to us, you little uppity elites. From the we actually have the true mountain where we worship. Like, no, you don't. We have it over here. And there's all this stuff going on between Jesus and the woman already. And that's just to talk about the Jewish Samaritan thing, not the male-female thing or the rabbi and disciple thing and all that stuff that's going on. And Jesus comes and the first thing he does is share a need to her. He's vulnerable. He says, I'm thirsty. Could you give me a glass of water? I'm thirsty. Give me a glass of water. He comes and shares his fleshly embodied need to her, someone he was supposed to exclude and have nothing to do with. Sorry, I've got to just find my spot because this is such a long passage. <laughs> she says, uh, he says, everyone that will drink this water will be thirsty again. And the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. She is already still thinking only on a certain plane. She's thinking, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. This is what makes sense to her mind. Her mind could comprehend that he was going to give her some special weird source of endless spring water that she wouldn't have to draw from the well and that would be nice but he's pointing her to something deeper that her mind couldn't comprehend because it came from God it's not anything that a human could think up this thing he's talking about a spring of living water that will keep you from being thirsty 
And so he uses the needs of her mind to point her to something deeper and different and something that doesn't run out. He talks to them, and he's trying to regenerate her mind and her thinking about what is possible. And so now I'll start reading as we continue the story. She says, give me that water. And he says, okay. I'll give you that water. Go call your husband. Tell him to come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. He said, yeah, you're right. You actually have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not even your husband. What you've said is true. And the next verse just says, oof. I don't know why. It's strange. <laughs> Jesus starts soul work with her. Do you see that? She thought they were just talking about some fleshly needs and some identity politics and things were a little different and weird. And who is this guy? I don't know what's going on. But he intrigues her and he starts doing soul work with her, something deeper than just she can sort of make excuses for with her mind. He's trying to find what's down deep, where she's wounded and hurt and has hidden things beneath ideology. And she stops and says, oh, sir, I see. <laughs> You're a prophet. That's great. Being a prophet then, let's go back to that mind place. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Which one should we do? Tell me the right theological answer. Do you see what she's trying to do there? She's trying to get back to debate. And this is a move we all do. Pay attention. Back to debate in order to deflect from our wounds and deeper wants, which is, feels unsafe. It feels like a wild animal in a forest. It feels afraid and foreign to us sometimes. It's scary with its wants and its needs and its hurts and its failures and its shame. She's like, oh, let's go back to theology. That's easier. <laughs> which one? Tell me the answer. Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour's coming. He actually gives her an answer. So again, it's not, these aren't, things aren't in opposition to each other, as we'll see in a second. The hour is coming. Actually, when all of you are wrong, you won't worship on this mountain or that mountain. But the hour is coming in now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. That's the kind of people the Father is seeking to worship him. And so they will worship everywhere. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And she said, well, I know that Messiah is coming He's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And now he's direct. And he says to her, I who speak to you am he. And now this is the full moment of truth. It's not just a disembodied claim. It's a man that seems to know something deep about her, that's paying attention to her, that's insistent and persistent with her, in her soul, and there is a truth claim before her about this man that is standing before her in the flesh. And then the disciples come back, and they marveled. I think it's probably more likely in colloquial to say that they were freaking out. That he's talking with a woman, but no one said, "Why do you? What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her?" So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, "Come see a man who told me all that I ever did." Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Their minds are getting blown to bits on both sides. The disciples, the Samaritans, 
what is this Jesus up to? He's blowing up all the normal things that keep our society in place, and we have a little belief system about everything and practices around it, and he's blowing that to bits by blowing their minds, by his behavior and his actions, and his seeing beneath the surface. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They look at each other like, does someone bring him food? We don't understand. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Don't you say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. And he's pointing at these Samaritans running out from the city now to him. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, you have entered into their labor. See, for a minute, Jesus is saying, ignoring his surface bodily needs for his real deep nourishment, and that is to save people with the good news, not only to reconcile them to God, but to help them find the source that will satisfy them in and through him to be reconciled across these divisions they've made, to leave the old thoughts that don't serve anymore behind about this mountain or that mountain or this, they did this to Jacob, you did that to so-and-so. No, 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 this new thing in Jesus. This is his will, this is his food, this is his nourishment, this is his life, and no one can see it or understand it yet. He wants this transformation for people. And he wants it more than we do. It says at the end that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. Again, not a thing you're allowed to do as a Jewish person. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, We have heard it for ourselves straight from the man. We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And you begin to see this idea of God, which is to save human beings and to be love into the world, is now beginning to take flesh through Jesus, and it's beginning to have effects that you can see in material form as new people are sitting around new tables sharing different kinds of food, different kinds of histories and traditions, and they're there in the flesh, and their minds are being changed, yes, but also their relationships and their actions, and their expectations, and their hopes, and who they're hanging out with, and what they're going to do next, and probably soon where they're going to worship and how they're going to worship, moving from just this place and this thing in my inherited tradition to spirit and truth, in and through Christ and God. And so love becomes flesh. Love became flesh and met our minds and our bodies and our souls and our spirits and our imaginations and our relationships. All of us, incarnation is embodied love. This is what Christians are to receive from Christ so that we can become this for others. Or as we talked about a few weeks ago in the worship sermon, love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul puts it in Colossians, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought into his fullness, the fullness of your mind. Yes, being transformed always by the word that is Christ, interpreted properly through the word that we have printed before us as men and women carried along by the Holy Spirit have left us this legacy of the Bible 
to have your mind transformed by the written word as it is faithful to the word that is Christ the Logos, to have your soul, to do the soul work that Jesus did with this woman, just like it's so easy to be like, well, I have this theology and you have that one, so we can't go to church together anymore. No, to get down to the soul, I have wounds, I have needs, I have hurts, I have longings. They sometimes shape and sometimes pervert the way that I think. And so Jesus gets underneath the surface and we have to pay attention through prayer and through journaling and through actually counseling with one another. What is underneath in our souls and our bodies, of course. I could spend a whole sermon or more, a whole year on this. But we have the sacraments. We have real things like water, bread, wine. All of these are broken in some sense, including our minds and our thinking. We don't just think right and everything else is a mess. Our thinking needs to be redeemed by Jesus. All of these are broken. All of them are being redeemed and all are needed for salvation. We are emphasizing this morning the last two of these three little three-legged stool, mind, soul, and body, because as I argued in the beginning, we have mostly only emphasized the one and cut off the legs of the stool, the other two, in our focus on disembodied truth. Again, it's not to denigrate truth. We have to worship God in spirit and in truth. It is to say that disembodied statements or claims of intellectual fact are not sufficient unless they become embodied in redemptive living and in redemptive, loving ways of life in the world. I'm denigrating truth without love, truth without mercy, truth without flesh, truth without body, truth without reality, truth without giving life to people rather than crushing them. The law of the letter kills. It is the spirit that brings life. We heard a story from a friend, a new friend, the other day lives across the country. You'll never know these people, so it doesn't matter. The mother was telling us this story of a time in which uh, she was having trouble with her 14-year-old daughter. It was just a mess. They were sides with each other. She's like, man, she hates me. Sometimes I feel like I might hate her. I don't understand what's going on. And she brought her dad in to stay for a few days. Her dad was a wise man. He had been such a faithful, attentive father to her and to her siblings. She said, will you just come and spend the weekend just observing and then just give me your thoughts at the end? So he did. And at the end, he came to her and he said to her, Okay, I have good news for you. The problem is not love. There's no lack of love in this place. It's clear that you love your daughter. It's actually clear that she loves you. But after observing all weekend, I went and talked to her and I said, how are you feeling? How's it going? You know, I watched the interaction with your mom. You know, what was that like for you? And she just said to her, I'll just report the dads to the mom. He said, do you remember being a 14-year-old woman, <laughs> young woman? Was that not one of the most excruciating and confusing and stressful poor parts of your whole life? The mom was like, yeah. Well, that's where she is. And when you come by and say, hey, don't forget to make your lunch. Hey, did you study for the thing? Hey, did you write your teacher back? Hey, did you clean up? It's as if, she said to me, you're putting another stone into her heavy backpack every time. The problem's not a lack of love. It might just be that you need to find other ways for the words to be embodied so that she feels love. And the mom was like, so I began to say a little less, although I would still need to say things, and focus on making a nourishing and safe dinner table, asking questions, giving encouragements, hugging, spending time playing together, doing silly things that relieve the stress. This is love. See, real truth is measured simply as its conformity to Christ, full stop. 
Real truth is not ideology or identity. It is Jesus in the flesh, full of grace and truth. It is also a people, a movable feast of bread and wine. It's touching lepers to heal them. It's cleaning temples. It's bearing the wounds of others' failures and woundedness. And for us, it might look like you. Refusing to cancel that kid because he's toxic, even though he just said a couple things that were wrong and he is like you in an ideological world trying to belong. And all your friends are like, cancel him. He's done. And no one's talking to him. You walk up to that kid and you say, we're not going to cancel you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to sit on this side of the lunchroom with you, even though everyone else just excluded you forever and forever. Amen. Maybe it's refusing to treat someone according to their preferred ideology or identity, even when they are using it as a weapon to get you to return fire for fire. Maybe it's us refusing ever to let ideology or identity politics split us when we are primarily in Christ. Maybe you sit down and buy that person a cup of coffee and ask good questions like, I saw this on Facebook. Tell me why this issue is so important to you. Not waiting to win the argument, but instead to ask follow-up questions. And maybe even to determine that you're not going to reply with some repost at the end. But instead, you're going to follow up in a meeting later. Or maybe never and pray instead. Maybe you instead observe and compliment them on something that they're commendable for. Maybe you just shake their hand, pay for the meal, and say Godspeed. Certainly it means kind words in patience and forgiveness and love. When we have to use words and arguments, we do it with patience and forgiveness and love in a toxic speech culture. Maybe it's treating people more like embodied human beings and needs. I love this other story. I don't want to take long to say it, but it's just so beautiful. Parker Palmer is this amazing educator and writer, and he went through a season of profound depression. Profound. Couldn't leave his room. And he'd have people come, and they're always saying, like, oh, you well, you know Jesus, Parker, you're going to be okay, or this and that, or you just need to keep up the hope, you know, and throwing Bible verses at him. And he's like, if, if you've ever had chronic depression, you have no idea that those things just don't land. They do nothing to serve. They just increase your shame and sense of ex- being excluded, if anything. And he had one old man friend, this old farmer, that would come by every few days and sit down in silence and just rub his feet. Every day for about a year. Every once in a while, he'd say something like, you know what, Parker, you feel stronger today. That's about it. That act of love is the primary human interaction that helped Parker Palmer come out of his depression and to experience God's love through someone else. What if we were a church that made the word flesh, giving them the healing hem of Christ's robe when they're hemorrhaging, seeking to include people and work out all of their ideologies and identity in the community of God's embodied love. We're going to give them words. We're doing it now. We're going to transform minds by the power of Christ, but first, touch the leper. Hand out the hem. Heal someone with a tender touch. Make someone a meal. Believe and experience that we are all one in Christ and we belong to one another. And before you try to share a word, maybe, first, be flesh for the sake of the world. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.